Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The following podcast contains explicit language and content that may not be suitable for all listeners. In 2013, I received a message from a middle school friend that would change my life. Hello, this is a call from an inmate at the Queen's Detention Facility. Yo, 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 yo. Yo, life is first. It's like 9, 15. I'm hoping that I would just be able to call you. I'm just like really pissed off right now. I got my whole case. I just want to wake up and my case be fucking done with it already. All right, thank you. I'll talk to you later. Chris would go on to make huge allegations against the then Suffolk County Police Chief, James Burke. These allegations proved mostly true and under the purview of the United States Justice Department led to the conviction of Chief Burke, as well as then District Attorney Tom Spoda. We covered the investigation into Burke in our early episodes of Unraveled, Long Island Serial Killer. Because not only did Chief Burke have a history with sex workers, how does a guy get on the cover of Newsday for having sex with prostitutes and not be fired by the county executive? It actually says, did have sex while on duty in a marked police vehicle. Substantiated. On what planet is this okay? He was also proven to have thwarted the investigation into the murders of 11 victims found along Ocean Parkway. The FBI was not involved in the Gilgo Beach investigation. They had been removed by then Chief Burke. So there was no involvement whatsoever. If you haven't had a chance to listen to these early episodes, we suggest you do now. He was doing everything he could to keep the feds out of Suffolk County. The timing's terrible. The fact that somebody with a proclivity for sex workers ended up in charge of this case, just optics are awful. Yeah. James Burke found himself in hot water once again this month. We talk about his recent arrest and take a deeper look at Rex Uerman, 
the man police allege is responsible for at least three of the murdered victims. Two men with a history of frequenting sex workers, both forever tied to the story of the Long Island serial killer. From ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Long Island Serial Killer. There are a few updates that we should cover before we dive in. First up, the family attorneys for Rex Huerman's wife and kids held their own press conference. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming out. I'm Bob Macedonio. I'm the attorney representing Asa Ellerup. As you all aware, she's the uh, wife of the uh, Gilgo Beach serial killer suspect. On her behalf, she wanted me to express her thanks for the enormous outpouring of support that she's received in the past several weeks. We've gotten gift cards, care packages, food's been delivered to her house. There's also been a GoFundMe page that's been set up on her behalf. She will receive 100% of the funds from that. Asa has authorized me to relay to everybody that for the past several years she's been suffering from cancer. She has breast cancer. She also has skin cancer. She's presently under a course of treatment that's going to continue for the next 12 to 18 months. Now why I bring that up is because her health insurance is due to expire in the next 60 days. The source of her health insurance was from her husband's employer, so when the funds run out in his business accounts, the health insurance will no longer be available for her. In our last episode, I interviewed Carrie Rawson, daughter of Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. We talked about how, on top of the shock and realization that a close family member could stand accused of such heinous crimes, the financial repercussions of an arrest are also devastating. Add to that a dual cancer diagnosis and a special needs child, and you can almost grasp just some of the hell this family is going through. We did tour the house on Sunday. I was there with my staff and saw the damage that was done and the mess that was left behind when the police did leave. The drain pipes were taken out of the bathroom. You could not run any of the water. We had a cleanup crew come in with 20-yard dumpsters with five men and start removing debris that was left behind. It was piled floor to ceiling with debris that was just taken out of the attics of every closet. Every inch of the house, there was a path probably a foot or two wide to get from the front door to the kitchen, and that was the way through the house. Their valuables were shattered, their beds were destroyed, the places that they laid their heads down at night no longer exist. The reason that they spend so much time outside and why you folks photograph them on the porch is because they can't be inside. The house is in shambles, it's ransacked, it was run over through, rough shot, okay? So it's not as if they don't want to be inside their house, but uh, it, the conditions inside are deplorable, and they were left in a deplorable condition. Both Mr. Macedonio, who represents the wife, and Mr. Mitev, who represents the children, are preparing for a lawsuit. We are, at this point, announcing that the children and Ms. Ellerup, on her behalf, are going to be protecting those legal rights and remedies by filing what's called a notice of claim. That notice of claim is going to be filed within the next 30 days, and that obviously is a legal prerequisite to filing a lawsuit. There are certain rights that they have to protect within a 90-day period for notice of claim. The property damage that was done, if you don't file that notice of claim within 90 days, you lose the right to pursue it at a later date. While these conditions sound awful, and for the record, I hope the family gets the help they need, it's also important to understand why they are in this mess in the first place. 
law enforcement clearly believes that there's a chance that Rex Hureman committed the crimes he's accused of in his home. We know for the three murders he's been charged with, his family members were out of town. The bail document also shows that the victim's cell phones traveled near his home at the time the crimes allegedly occurred. And based on the forensics, it's been intimated that he spent time with them uninterrupted. If there's a chance that scientific testing could prove that the victims were in that house, investigators had the obligation to look everywhere. The victims and their families were owed that. We've also learned that the FBI is working with South Carolina state authorities as they look into the 2017 disappearance of Julia Ann Bean in connection with Rex Uerman. Rex owns several vacant lots in South Carolina where his brother also lives. Those are located about 90 minutes from where Julia was last seen. I spoke with Heidi, a friend of Julia's. Julia was a good person. She had a drug addiction. She was sick. And she did stupid shit. Julie was amazing. She was kind and loving and smart. I don't know the Julie that sleeps with men for money. I don't, I don't know that woman. I know the woman that wanted to repair her marriage and her family. Like many of the Ocean Parkway victims, Julia struggled with addiction and resorted to sex work to support her habit. She had grown up in a dysfunctional family and when the father of her daughter, Cam, passed, it was a difficult time for all of them. When Julia went missing, everyone assumed that her addiction had taken hold yet again. She was not reported for six months after she disappeared. And by the time the police got involved, there were squatters living in her house. Her house was ransacked by the time the police got involved. Bad, so sad. So it took six months to report her missing. So, of course, like, it was a confusing case to take on at that point. Right. The daughter and her had a rocky relationship. And Julie made her daughter move out. And, you know, in Cam's defense, she didn't know where her mom was or when she was coming or going. All that poor girl did know is that her mother didn't show up for her graduation. And she went out of her way to make sure she gave Julie three tickets, just in case she lost one, she had two more. How sad is that? After years of no leads, everything changed the day of Rex Hureman's arrest. Turn the TV on and lo and behold, there's that shitty man again. And then I hear he's got ties to South Carolina. And I instantly sit down on my couch. I see the victims come across my TV and I knew. I just knew right then and there, Julie. So I messaged Cam, her daughter, right away. I felt horrible. This man brutally and savagely raped and murdered them. And I felt horrible. So when Cam messaged me back, I told her, you know, there's a serial killer out of New York and I really want her to look into this guy's face and see if you recognize him. He's linked to South Carolina. And she was like, no, I think it's a guy here. And she named some other guy. And I said, just look. And she did. And she was like, oh my God, that's the guy I saw my mom with the last night I saw her. And then she just, you know, 
like vomited all the information. You know, she just couldn't stop. All the things that Rex told her, said that he had a boat and a lake house and that her and her friends could use it for graduation. And then he even offered to take her to a concert after graduating. So Cam actually saw him on the last time she saw her mom? Yes. Both Cam and Heidi are in touch with authorities and are working with investigators. After three weeks, local investigators have not been able to put Rex and Julia together. Now that the FBI is involved, that may change. Unfortunately, this is a difficult case to get a resolution on, unless Julia's body is located and more evidence can be found, or perhaps proof of Julia is discovered within Rex Uerman's possessions. We'll stay in touch and report back on any progress. Since the arrest of Rex Uerman, we've been working on building a comprehensive timeline that we're exploring for the purpose of trying to understand who Rex is. Where did he come from? What was going on in his life as these horrific crimes were being committed? And how do they connect? To help me understand some of what we discovered, I reached out to Dr. Angela Arnold. She's been practicing psychiatry for 25 years. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your work. I am interested in seeing what underlies all of these people because people aren't that different. And every time somebody's arrested or every time there's a big crime like this, everybody's so shocked and surprised, right? But there's so many similarities amongst these killers that maybe we could start to prevent some of this. You were somewhat aware of the Long Island serial killer arrest. Do you have any immediate takes on this guy based on what you've read in the headlines? He's hiding in plain sight in front of his family and his co-workers, and he probably becomes more and more comfortable with what he's doing. And his wife just begins to accept that, well, he's going to be out tonight and things like that. And she stops thinking anything about it because it becomes a pattern of his behavior. So let's start at the beginning. Rex was born on Friday, September 13th, 1963. His full name is Rex Andrew Huerman. He has three older sisters and a younger brother. I reached out to a childhood friend to get some insight into what the Huerman dynamic was like. Here's my interview with John Parisi. I met him when I was in second grade and I was friends with his younger brother, Craig. He was two years older than me. My high school sweetheart, lived on the same block as Rex and his brother Craig. We saw them all the time. Craig was very sociable. He had friends. He was friendly. Everybody had their own niche. They were jocks. They were bookworms. Rex never really found a niche in any type of group. You could be alone in a house full of people, okay? He was alone in a school full of people. So he was like a true loner. Almost to the point where it was strange. Everybody had at least one or two friends. Everybody. And it just didn't seem like he did. He was always off, a little off. Wow. And somebody remembers that from the second grade. I bet we all have people like that that make such an impression on us because they're kind of an outlier. They're not like everybody else, are they? I want to hear more. 
the interactions with Rex that you did have, like, how would you describe him? He was very imposing. He was huge. I would say a good head foot taller than most of the kids, three or four kids that would gang up on him. The funny thing is, he never retaliated. I've seen him get mad and everything else and have like a meltdown, but he never, ever struck back, which I found was very interesting. Kids can be cruel. I don't know. I, I think he internalized it. It sounds like he did. And everything you read about these serial killers, they do internalize things because they don't know how to say what they're actually feeling. And then unfortunately, they start having their own thoughts in their head about those internalized feelings. It's like, if you don't have a way to process this, this will materialize in some other way. There's more that I think you'll find interesting. Does anything stand out to you as peculiar? His father was hard on him. His father was a hardcore German disciplinarian, screaming, yell. There was no talking. It was always yelling and screaming. And that was the generation we grew up in. He yelling and screaming and embarrassed the kid in front of everybody. Or you would hear him yelling and screaming down the block. And it was it happened a lot. Have you lived on Long Island? Yeah, I'm from Smithtown. Okay. So you know, in a small town, everybody knows everybody's business. Why did they seem like a non-traditional family to you? First of all, you never saw the mother. I've never, in all the years I can remember being around that house or on that block, rather, I only saw his father come outside. They would work on their cars. They would shovel snow. They'd be out, you know, outside or whatever. But I never saw the mother. Wow. Did you know or ever hear or see of Rex's sisters? No. No, I didn't know. I can't say I have. I haven't heard anyone talk about them. They were not visible. It's like the mother. I wonder what his sisters were like. Don't you? Do you have any information about what his sisters were like and his mother? Not much has come out about them. The mother's 93 years old. But what we do know is that Rex Huerman bought his childhood home from his mother in 1994 and continued to live there to this day. His father, Theodore, was a military man who passed when Rex was just 12 years old. His mother, Dolores, continued to raise the family by herself. If his father died when he was 12, then his father died before this man could do anything about the abuse. So when his father died, he was still abused by his father. He was never able to be okay with that. Yeah, because so much of healing is confronting even when you're older, I can understand how that may fester. It would fester inside of you, wouldn't it? But 12 years old, boys are starting puberty and all of these thoughts are in their head. And then his abusive father died right when that started to happen with him. That's something that we need to keep in the back of our heads. As we move down the Rex Hurman timeline, we'll focus on some shocking revelations at work next. And later, We'll take a closer look at the former Suffolk County Police Chief James Burke's latest arrest. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. After high school, he goes on to become an architect. Where did he go to college, Alexis? Did he stay in his hometown? He went to the New York Institute of Technology, and there's a campus on Long Island. He didn't go far because I know he was working summers where the bodies were found, seasonal work there. So he stayed close. Did he live on campus? We're still piecing that together. I know at one point he got an apartment in Brooklyn when he was doing an internship following graduation. So he left very briefly, but he never went too far. You have to wonder, did the mother make him feel like he had to stay around the home after the father died? Do you think there is a reason why he'd want to remain in his childhood home? Like why he would want to buy the house from his mother? And even though it's not a nice house, it was dilapidated by the time he bought it. 
So a couple of the reasons that there could be, maybe he felt safe there. I mean, let's face it, he was always put down as a child and whatever. Maybe that was a safe place for him to be. Why would he want to be in that home? Okay. Deep down inside of his unconscious, maybe he had something to finish. Okay. And it had to be finished through him being in that home. This man has basically lived in this house since he was born, which is odd to me. It's very odd. He may not even be aware of why he wanted to be in that home. And it could be an unconscious urge that he had to stay in that home. Do you know if his mother is of sound mind right now? Unclear. No one's spoken with her or been able to reach her. There is so much information to be had there. Yeah, it would be so fascinating. So after high school, he becomes an architect. Then he starts his own firm. And it it seems as though he reinvented himself, right? After high school, a lot of people do that. 1994 is a big year for Rex Uerman. This was a time when Bill Clinton is president, Kurt Cobain took his own life, and we all tuned in to the slow-speed Bronco chase courtesy of O.J. Simpson. As for Rex, he starts his own consulting firm. Two years later, he marries Asa Ellerup, becomes stepfather to her son from a previous marriage, and they welcome their own daughter, Victoria, to their family. And then he seems really settled into life as a family man, but also a businessman. I want to focus for a moment on who Rex was at work. In my interview with Mary Shell, I started understanding why Rex was successful in his firm. I landed at a small architecture firm, and we actually contracted a lot of our expediting work out to Rex's company, which I knew to be called RH Consultants. Really, his bread and butter was zoning, building code, getting plans approved. That kind of work is really tedious. It's not unusual to hire that kind of work out to a third party. In order to build a certain type of structure, you know, you have to be in compliance in more ways than you can ever imagine. And so people who specialize in this stuff can be like encyclopedias. I think the attitude was sort of, that he was a problem solver. He sort of came at you like he had your back, like he was going to help you out. And I think that that was a deception. I think that that was sort of like professional love bombing, you know? Are you serious? So what do you think about that? That helps us define him as a narcissist at the very least, doesn't it? Narcissists have no self-esteem. Okay, Alexis, they have no self-esteem. Your self-esteem is developed, believe it or not, in your first year of life. I'm telling you, this is why I wanted to talk to his mother so badly. So he finally gets to this place where he owns his own company and he can truly shine for who he is. He can let all of those narcissistic qualities come out. Love bomb, then devalue. Love bomb, devalue, right? Because it's his company now, and he's in charge. Mary describes some other behaviors she witnessed. I guess he struck me as somebody who was kind of abrasive, kind of blustery. He came across as very self-important. He wanted to project how important he was and how well-connected he was. He was really invested in controlling the room, the conversation, the mood. He could be a tyrant and a bully, really, to his employees. Was he like kind of an annoying, socially awkward guy? Yes. But he, I assumed 
was harmless. There was one particular comment that Mary made that really stood out to me. He's like overbilling clients. He's demeaning women who work for him. He's getting into spats with colleagues about stealing clients. He does like a big game hunting trip in Africa. And whatever it was that he killed, he sent the photo around to everyone. He's like somebody who enjoys like shock value, you know, and making people uncomfortable. He loved that. This wasn't the first reference to Rex Heuerman seeming to get enjoyment out of shocking people and making people uncomfortable that I'd heard. Another story came through. This one, though, is from an anonymous source. And trust me, though, I spent weeks tracking down the validity of this story and have gotten it confirmed through multiple additional sources. In order to protect the identity of the witness, we've changed their voice. We were working with these editors, and they had subleased, like, an office from Rex. We had our edit suite, and then in, like, the back was, like, Rex's office. So it's like he had to, like, come walk through our space to get to his space. I remember just, like, being in the elevator with him. And you know how when you get into a crowded elevator, people kind of, like, scrunch up to the side to, like, make room for everybody? He would be the opposite of that. He would almost, like, make you feel a little bit uncomfortable with his size. I'm just out of college. I haven't had interactions with too many adults. You know, it's like early days of the internet, and he called me into his office, and he said, I want to show you something. And it's like this interrogation video, and it's says, police are interrogating this guy. And the police leave, and I'm like, well, okay, like, what are you showing me this for? He's like, wait for it, hold on a sec, wait for it. And then the guy who was being interrogated, he must have, like, had a gun in and on himself, and he takes out the gun, and he, he shoots himself and kills himself. And I just remember being like, what the fuck? Like, why are, like, why are you showing me this? Like, what is this fucking weird? This guy is really fucking weird. Oh, my gosh. And you know this all gets him off sexually. This is all about sex, okay? This arouses him sexually. We've also talked to some sex workers who went out with him who said, you know, he would bring up the Long Island serial killer. Do you think he's, like, testing people? And if so, like, what is he testing for? I think that just like when people revisit their crimes, he wanted to talk about it. He wanted to know if other people knew about it, didn't he? Like, how famous am I? He thinks of himself as very famous. And we know that when he was arrested, the first thing he asked was, am I in the news? Are they talking about it in the news? You know what else, Alexis, that I just want to throw out there? So when he was 12 years old, he became the head of the household, didn't he? He's not being abused anymore, so maybe he can start abusing others. That's a lot to put on a 12-year-old's shoulders, isn't it? We've learned that he's a massive hunter, and he's got 300 guns, right? But these women were strangled. What do each of those things tell us? Strangulation is a very personal way to kill somebody. You know, when you shoot someone from a distance, you may not necessarily see their reaction to being shot, okay? But when you're standing over someone strangling them, you can feel the life coming out of them. You can feel their last breath coming out of them. So imagine the control that he felt over that and the anger, right? It's so much more personal than shooting someone, okay? Bang, bang, you're done, okay? But he certainly loves killing, doesn't he? And he loves that power and control that he has over living things. And 
that's why, <laughs> that's why he loves the hunting. I wanted to ask Dr. Arnold about some specific encounters police believe Rex Hurman had with the victims. I'm not sure how familiar you are, but the fourth victim, Amberlyn Costello, the first time she met Rex Hewerman, it was actually under the guise of a ruse. So her and her two housemates basically had him come, he paid her, and then they chased him out. And he was super angry. And the next day, he scheduled another time to see her, and that's when he killed her. It was his fatal flaw because it was this encounter. And these two guys who lived with her saw the vehicle, saw this man, gave a description. So it was so risky, but he still did it. The next day, he still went, offered her money, and saw her again. She was never seen alive again. You know why, Alexis? He was triggered, right? He was triggered. That made him feel like he did when he was a kid. So he got sloppy. That was a direct trigger to how he was treated when he was that little boy in school. But now he could do something about it. Now he has money. He has a car. And now he could act out a lot of these folks, they get a little bit sloppy when they finally get to that place where they're going to do their killing. But at the end of the day, they are narcissists and they might think they're smart, but their emotions overcome them. Their emotions that they have never healed actually overcome them in this and they take over. And that's why we can catch them. After that, he hangs on to the vehicle for another 15 months. And we believe this to be the vehicle that he used to dispose of the bodies, the vehicle that he used to facilitate these encounters. Why would he hold on to it? I think he thinks he can't get caught because that's what narcissists believe also. They believe they're smarter than everybody. They believe they're better than everybody. Maybe he couldn't afford another car. And also in holding on to it, no one could do anything to the inside of the car, could they? Like if he's holding on to the car, no one can investigate that car. Wow. And you think then when we're talking about Amber and him getting triggered and even though the housemate saw him, saw his vehicle, and that would be his sort of fatal flaw, you think his just, his triggering overcame his sense of self-preservation? Alexis, remember, it's not like this man got any treatment for anything, right? So he's just going along doing this. And I hate to say this, but they're sick, right? So they're not thinking logically about, oh, gosh, what if they see my car? No, he's done it so many times, he feels comfortable. But he was stirred up inside by this encounter. He was so stirred up inside about it that he blew caution to the wind. And it got him caught. More with Dr. Arnold and all the latest details on James Burke next. We're learning about him, that he had several phones, several email accounts, burner phones, burner email accounts. Like, what kind of person is able to juggle all of that? A sneaky person. He doesn't have a conscience about what he's doing. He may know the difference between right and wrong, but Alexis, I promise you, he has no conscience. And so imagine he's got a goal in front of him, right? All day long, he has a goal in front of him. And everything he does is to get to that goal. So if he needs some burner phones, if he needs some extra email addresses, everything he does is to attain the goal that he is looking towards. Wow. Because Alexis, it all comes back around also to, he doesn't care about anybody else. 
He doesn't really care about anybody else's feelings, okay? And that happened when he was a child. Pivoting back to his family, I don't know if you saw that the bail document listed all of his really disturbing pornography searches that were like torture porn and pedophile porn. His daughter worked at that office with him. So she's like down the hall when this is happening. Obviously, the wife is battling cancer. She has an older special needs son. If you could try to explain to a layperson like why these people may not have known or caught the signs, how would you explain that? First of all, Alexis, let's not assume that the family members never noticed anything. That's a big jump to make. They may have assumed some things. They may have thought about some things. But let's not forget what narcissists are very good at also. And it's that good old term called gaslighting. And a narcissist can gaslight you so many times that you literally start to question what your own thoughts are. So even if somebody saw a little porn on his computer or something like that, he's going to gaslight them. He's going to say, oh yeah, Joe down the hall was using my computer. I've told him not to do that before. We can't make the assumption that no one ever picked up on it, on anything. But when you're gaslit and gaslit and gaslit, you the, the thing about gaslighting is it starts to make you question the thoughts that are in your own head. Think about something else, Alexis, like we talked about a little earlier. He became successful. So here he is. The, the family loses a father when he's 12 years old. Who knows how they lived after that, right? They might have had to have some social assistance or something. And then all of a sudden, he's a successful architect in New York City. Do you think his family's going to question him too much? They were probably taking care of all of them. His daughter worked at the office. He was financially, I'm sure, taking care of all of them. They're not going to stir that pot too much, are they? And then he's abruptly arrested. And it appears as though he was completely blindsided by that. What is his mind frame upon realizing he's been caught? What does a narcissist like this do? Well, they don't stop being a narcissist. Okay, so they double down. He's not going to admit anything. He's not because the narcissism is like a castle that he has built around himself to protect his ego. He still thinks he's better than everybody else. And he still thinks he's smarter than everybody else. This feels like a good place to leave my conversation with Dr. Arnold. There's more that we may get into in future episodes. But speaking of someone who thinks he's smarter than everybody else, I promise an update on James Burke, former chief of police with the Suffolk County PD. James Burke is a big topic in our early episodes of this podcast, so if you need to catch up, please do so. If you're up to date, just wait till you hear the latest bombshell. On Tuesday, August 22nd, as most American families were adjusting to back-to-school schedules, James Burke had other plans. Here is current chief of police, Rodney Harrison. Due to numerous complaints, about an activity over at Vietnam Memorial in Farmingville. Members assigned to the Suffolk County Park Rangers Targeted Response Unit conducted an operation utilizing plainclothes rangers. At 10.15 a.m. today, during this operation, they engaged one individual who was soliciting for sexual engagement. This individual was placed under arrest. The rangers ascertained that our perpetrator involved was identified as James Burke, former chief of the Suffolk County Police Department. He was transported to the 6th Precinct by 
Park Rangers for processing. He's being charged with offering a sex act, indecent exposure, public lewdness, and criminal solicitation, fifth degree. I open up the floor for any questions at this time. He was asked whether the undercover was a female officer. It was just male plainclothes officers during the operation. Suffolk County Park Rangers Chief Stephen Layton was asked if the Rangers knew who Mr. Burke was. No, not at first, not until he identified himself and said who he was, do you know who I am. So he said that to the ranger? Yes. Yeah. Was he attempting to get out of being arrested? Yeah. Yes, he was. Could you describe that? Uh... Well, he was expressing to us how this would you know, be a public humiliation for him and such. So. The last officer you heard speak was Sergeant Brian Quattrini. It's also important to note that since the arrest, Suffolk County has dropped two of the charges. The remaining counts are public lewdness and indecent exposure. And James Burke finished his federal probation last year, so he's clear from any probation violations. James Burke has not yet entered a plea as of this recording, and we will fill you in on any updates in the next episode. When the news broke, I had a lot of questions, the least of which was why? Why with all of the attention back on himself for the mishandling of the Lisk investigation, would Burke take this kind of risk? I reached out to Gus Garcia Roberts, the man who literally wrote the book on Burke. You can buy his engaging tale, Jimmy the King, anywhere books are sold. What is your understanding of what Burke did to get arrested? My understanding is that at around 10 a.m. on a weekday, he was at a park and he solicited sex from somebody who he did not know was a undercover park ranger. Apparently, this was not a sting. It was a police operation that was in response to complaints about there being public sex. James Burke solicited sex from an undercover agent and and the rest is history. What was your response when you heard about the news? Because I'm so used to the, you know, kind of wildness of Suffolk County, it almost wasn't surprising to hear that Burke had been arrested for soliciting sex. I also just thought it was striking that this was a guy who really ruled Suffolk County with an iron fist being the sort of unquestionable mob boss of of Suffolk County and of cops kind of doing his bidding. I just thought it was kind of a a fascinating departure to see how things, you know, had changed, where now he was just a guy getting caught for a very low-level, embarrassing crime by undercover park police. I thought that was interesting to witness how extremely his power has dissipated. Does this surprise you? No, I mean, his actions did not surprise me. He's always been kind of this swaggering, sex-driven character. In researching Burke, he was investigated multiple times by the Suffolk County Internal Affairs Bureau. And one of the crimes that she was convicted of was prostitution. And they said that when they were investigating him, they were looking into, quote, a trail of prostitutes. He was later accused of running a prostitution ring. He was investigated by internal affairs for that. You got to remember, this is a guy who launched a widespread 
criminal conspiracy to cover up the fact that he had sex toys and porn in a stolen duffel bag. This kind of thread of covering up sexual acts runs through his whole career. So it was not surprising to me that, you know, he might be soliciting sex in a public park. Is this the first time you heard in all your research that he was approaching a male? I had heard so much about his kind of bottomless sexual appetites that I was not at all surprised to learn from this event that he, you know, was apparently bisexual. Like, that didn't phase me at all. He's doing this at 10, 15 a.m. As a former officer, he probably would have known that this is sort of like a hot cruising area. What does this tell you about just like his proclivities and his addiction towards this behavior just from a common sense standpoint? It doesn't really depict much self-control, right? I mean, 10 a.m. And like you said, the area where he was arrested was like a known hotspot. He would have known how these police operations work. So it was just so extremely not careful. Are you surprised he wasn't able to get out of it? Was I surprised? Yeah, I think to some extent, sure. Like That was the thing that probably surprised me the most. I don't even necessarily think that's something just because it's James Burke. I think that cops cover for cops. And you would have thought that anybody caught up in this kind of a sting might have said, hey, I used to be a Suffolk County cop. And perhaps they would have had a chance of being let go. I don't really know what went into the the fact that that didn't happen here. I mean, it's obviously encouraging that he's not receiving sort of special treatment anymore. And I don't know if that's because, you know, the officers involved have integrity, whether, you know, there's just too many eyes on that operation, uh, or whether, you know, somehow Jimmy Burke being Jimmy Burke worked against him this time. Do you know what Burke had been doing since his release from prison? Like day-to-day to occupy his time? It appeared by all that he was living very quietly. And you basically heard no news. It appeared that he was sort of living on his $145,000 irrevocable Suffolk County Police Department pension and quietly nursing his wounds with a small circle of confidants who had remained his friends after his disgrace. And I thought it's interesting, he even stayed in the same house where he had lived for most of his adult life. He appeared to make an effort to just not change and not move at all. I thought that was kind of interesting because the typical cop trajectory is to move down to to Florida. And, you know, if he had done that, even if you caught soliciting sex in a park, you'd probably just be another James Burke and, you know, nobody might have ever heard about this. But the idea that he somewhat defiantly stayed in the place where he was so notorious, I don't know if that says something about that he was just comfortable in Suffolk County or that there's some defiance there. I'm not sure, but I thought that was an interesting decision. And I wonder now after such an embarrassing episode, if that will remain true, you know, whether he will sort of continue to live in the same place and Smithtown will be interesting to see. For those listeners who are caught up on our early Lisk episodes, you may remember the story of Loretta Rickenbacker. 
the sex worker who carried on a long-term relationship with James Burke for which he was investigated by Internal Affairs. With James Burke now proven to still frequent sex workers, I asked Gus if he thought that Burke actually cared about these sex workers. He might have had many encounters with people who worked as sex workers, but I never got the feeling that he was real enlightened about it. Loretta Rickenbacker told me she basically covered for him and she lied to her internal affairs, according to her, about you know various allegations that they're investigating, including that that he had smoked crack with her. You know, she told internal affairs that he had not, but she told me, you know, I lied to internal affairs to cover for him because I loved him. She was kind of Jimmy Burke's ride or die, and their relationship ended after the internal affairs investigation. And Lorita continued to have legal problems. She continued to be arrested. And then she said there was this one moment where she was taken into the precinct, you know, Burke basically got a slap on the wrist and he continued to ascend through the police department. And there was one point where Lorita was taken to a precinct where Burke happened to work at that point. And she said that Burke kind of looked at her with disdain and said, you're still doing this shit? She remembered that moment years later and she said it kind of broke her heart. So from stories like that, I never really got the idea that he had much kind of empathy for a character like Lorita Rickenbacker. And I suppose it's kind of an ironic moment now, considering Jimmy Burke is still doing this shit. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our early episodes on this case, please take a moment to do so. We deep dive into James Burke and his crimes while being a Suffolk County police officer and how his actions thwarted the Long Island serial killer investigation. If you know Rex Hewerman, or if you would like to contribute to our story in a different way, please send an email to us at unraveledtips at gmail.com or contact me directly on Instagram at Alexis Linkletter. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers and writers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and myself, Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID, Thomas Cutler. Our editor is Caitlin Cleveland. Lisa Rebikoff is our associate producer. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.